Hey everybody and welcome to the podcast. I'm Steven. And I'm Daniel. And today we continue our first 500 year series talking about exorcism in the early church. We are situated still in the second century. Uh, but before we get there, just want to remind you that if you like the content we're putting out here, if you like the first 500 year series, make sure you share it with people, of course, but be sure to subscribe to the channel. Uh, like the video and leave us a comment. We do try to respond to every comment uh, that you leave. And then um, tap the bell for notifications right. for new episodes. Tap the bell for drop. notifications. Uh, that way you'll know when we when we drop an episode. So um, we can dive right in. I, I think uh, this is a really interesting topic. I think exorcism has become something that um, has been uh, – has become very interesting to people. <laughs> we'll say that in, in recent decades, as we've seen well, basically the world go completely berserk. But um, also, you know, exorcism movies are the thing. Everybody loves to talk about the demonic for some reason. Um, but there, there's also like really great podcasts now too. Um, and, and YouTube channels where we're interviewing like exorcist priests and, and really good, a, uh, really good Satanist groups too. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, one really great podcast, the the Exorcist Files, and uh, any and the priest in there, he notes that just exorcisms and and demonic activity and stuff has just been on the rise um, in in recent decades. It's been noticeable amongst him and all his exorcist friends. So it's a topic of interest. Um, but apart from being a topic a topic of interest, uh, you and I also just believe that this is actually a pivotal topic um, when we're talking about the early church. It's not just that like oh mm -hmm. it's cool to talk about demons. Let's talk about demons. But this is, um, uh, in our view, almost part and parcel of the mission, uh, the missionary activity yeah, of the cause, church. Yeah, because when you talk about the second century, it's, it's, that, it's that long century, like we've mentioned before, of, of growth and, and looking outwards, not, no longer uh, just internal, uh, but looking out to the nations and addressing the nations, whether it's the apologists uh, themselves or the activities of everyday lay Christians. The Christians are on the move. And I think we situated this episode now because we're we're getting into uh, that time period when the Christians are doing such a thing. They're moving into the nations. They're not just addressing fellow Jews anymore, or or even just uh, Gentile God fearers, which is still you can argue within the Jewish uh, framework. These are these are the what we call the pagans, the pagani, the the country folk mm -hmm. um, that have um, this popular pagan religion. And the context to that, that these Christians are, are now encountering and having to face. And so this episode is about uh, the perspective Christians have on that pagan religious worldview. Um, because, and, and this episode can really almost act as a, a part one to a, a coming episode, which will be the Roman pagan perspective on Christianity. Mm -hmm. So as these two worlds begin to collide, uh, we want to uh, see how early Christians are viewing their pagan contemporaries uh, and the lens through which they're uh, viewing them. Yeah, one question that a lot of um, scholars and just, you know, students of church history alike, you know, we can become fascinated with is just like, how the heck did this bizarre sort of intra-Jewish cult of a crucified God, you know, just like within 500 years completely topple everything that was, that was previously Rome, right? Um, how does this Jesus of Nazareth end up winning against the Roman gods? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. um, 
So I think that question kind of lurks in the background here too. And, and I think this episode is going to help um, add more color to the answer to that question because typically I think people um, focus on just like the message itself, right? Or sociological factors, um, you name it, right? It was just like the right place, right time kind of thing. Um, but I think in this episode, at least I hope, people will see that um, there was something about exorcism that stuck in the imaginations of the pagans and um, and piqued their interest in, in what was going on and resonated with their experience. So we'll talk about mm -hmm. that. But um, first what we want to do is we want to make two cohorts of scholarship talk to each other. Um, and that is uh, scholarship in like just early exorcist, like early Christian exorcism. Um, but you and I have also always thought that, man, wouldn't it be cool if people who study exorcism in the early church had a little bit more exposure to the work of people like Dr. Michael Heiser or like Father Stephen DeYoung uh, on divine counsel scholarship mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. Uh, I think if it, we're going to make those two kind of talk to each other, and that'll give you kind of this like rounded out picture of how not only Second Temple Jews, but the earliest Christians viewed cosmology, like viewed the world, viewed demonology as they mm -hmm. were going about their mission among the Gentiles. Um, and then at the, at the end of this episode, we'll kind of bring it all home as we usually do with like just some, our own personal like reflections, Catholic takeaways. Um, so let's kind of start with like the divine counsel piece of this, because there's going to be a lot of people, even if, you know, you have been listening to our episodes, you just need a refresher kind of like, what are we talking about when we say the divine counsel? Um, yeah. So, um, grab your Bibles. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so divine counsel, we, we, I know we've mentioned it in a number of episodes. We've referenced it. Um, but the, the long and short of it is that, um, God, the most high God, Yahweh, um, has a council of gods. Um, and, uh, and so the idea of, um, monotheism, a strict monotheism is not a Hebrew idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not a Christian idea. It's a, an idea that, that develops in early to late Judaism, where God is one and only one singular. Um, the Hebrew concept of God, um, saw a, um, uh, most likely a, a, a multiplicity within the unity of, of God, God Father and God Son, um, but also other divine beings that were um, created, of course, mm -hmm. uh, to be uh, in this council that God um, uses to um, effect his will on the earth and in the, in the universe. And among that council was the Son. So you have sons of God in the council, um, and then you have the Son of God, or uh, Christians refer to the begot the only begotten, right? Jesus, um, the Son of God. Um, so this this divine council um, is seen in a number of places in Scripture, uh, but it but it really comes to the fore um, for scholars only in the 20th century, uh, where they kind of rediscover this tradition. And that's the work of Dr. Michael Michael Heisner. Uh, with the discovery of the Ugaritic texts, so the, the Ugaritic texts are the ancient Canaanite religious texts, um, uh, the ancient land that the, the ancient Hebrews come into or the, the mm -hmm. Israelites come into. Right. And so as the, the Israelites are, are encountering that religious culture, um, 
we now can tell that certain episodes that are happening in the Old Testament are references to or framed by that Canaanite um, cosmology. Okay, so for example, um, you know, the one coming on the clouds, okay, uh, we see that in Daniel referring to Christians <clears throat> say to the Son of God, to Jesus. Well, the rider on the clouds is in the Baal cycle. It's the, it refers to Baal, the son of, of God, of the high God in Eucharistic culture. Mm-hmm. So these, there's these connections that are going on, and it's, it's, it's like the Hebrews are saying back to the Canaanites. Um, Correcting the record. That, no, no, this is, <laughs> this is the correct interpretation of that divine counsel. So, um, so Genesis, in Genesis 11, we have the, um, the Babel account. Right, mm-hmm. and in the Babel account, you have the the peoples of the world coming together and and building the Tower of Babel, a ziggurat, um, and they all speak the same language. And God says, "But we can't let that happen." And so He disperses the people, gives them each their own languages, and disperses them into seventy nations. Mm-hmm. Um, what God then ends up doing is appointing gods of His council to oversee those 70 nations. And that's his, that's the quote unquote divine council. Now the role of those gods was to lead those nations back to right worship, lead those nations back to the one true God. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we know, as we follow the Old Testament story, they don't do that. There's many falls of angels, there's many falls of, of humans along the way. And what ends up happening is that those sons of God, those angelic beings, those divine beings, in fact, start to receive worship and deceive the nations into worshiping, uh, worshiping them. And so um, where we see this uh, commentary on the Tower of Babel, we see it in two spots in Deuteronomy, actually, we can call out. In Deuteronomy four nineteen, we read, and when you look up to the heavens and behold the sun or the moon or the stars, the whole heavenly host, do not be led astray into bowing down to them and serving them. These, the Lord your God, has apportioned to all the other nations under the heavens. And then a, um, a second reference is in Deuteronomy 32, in the Song of Moses. He sings, When the Most High allotted each nation its heritage, when he separated out human beings, he, sep- he set up the boundaries of the peoples after the number of divine beings, 70. But the Lord's portion was his people. His allotted share was Jacob. Mm-hmm. So you can see it's it's referencing the time, Babel, when God dispersed the peoples into the nations and appointed over them gods. Um, and so you, you see a number of these council scenes then throughout the Old Testament. They show up in the Psalms. It shows up in Job where the... the, the um, <clears throat> Uh, the adversary, the the uh, the Satan, mm-hmm. is accusing the accuser is accusing uh, Job of things. Uh, you see it there. You also see it. A uh, good example of of all of this uh, is in Psalm eighty two, where God rebukes the divine council for not properly showing them, um, uh, well, proper mor- morality, but also not leading them back to Him, um, the, with the one true God. So in Psalm eighty two. Uh, it reads, God takes a stand in the divine council, gives judgment in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and favor the cause of the wicked? Defend the lowly and fatherless. Render justice to the afflicted and needy. Rescue the lowly and poor. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
The gods neither know nor understand, wandering about in darkness, and all the world's foundations shake. I declare, gods though you be, offspring of the Most High, all of you, you, like any mortal, shall die. Like any prince, you shall fall. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for yours are all the nations. So there, right, right there in seed form is the rescue plan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, God gave the counsel to the nations. They disobeyed him. They accepted worship. And, and now there's a call in the Psalms for God to rise up and reclaim the nations. Right. Um, and, and people might at this point be wondering, like, how is it that, you know, this got, this tradition was forgotten, you know, and, uh, only to be rediscovered by, you know, Dr. Michael Heiser (laughs) in, in the modern era. Well, we have to remember too, that, um, for the vast majority of biblical translation history in the modern world, um, we're working off of the Masoretic text. Uh, which is which is a, a a Jewish a rabbinical medieval right a rabbinical um, uh, basically it's a inserting of vowels into the Hebrew text um, and there's choices. and every translation every translation is a is an interpretation right you know it, it's not well, that so. it's not necessarily that you had bad players I mean you could have had some bad players along the way with anything. Um, but Hebrew do, for, for our audience, like Hebrew doesn't have vowels. It only has consonants. Right. So I don't know, a stupid example, maybe in our language, like if English like had a word that was K N G and you'd be like, okay, is, is that King? Uh, or is it Kong? <laughs> so, <laughs> or King Kong. <laughs> so, um, but you can do things like that in Hebrew. Um, so when it came time for the rabbis to sort of add these vowel marks, uh, there's choices that could be made and it could be made. And sometimes there's just like full scrubs of lines out of the text. Um, any time, because by that time the rabbis had become very uncomfortable with the idea of a plurality, uh, in the, in the Godhead especially, but also just a plurality of gods, this whole idea, uh, they would say, well, the text can't mean that. So therefore, it means this, and they would insert the vowels accordingly, yeah. or they would, you know, take a line out and say that must be a mistake of a scribe or something. But the problem with that is that we've had other discoveries, like things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, that show us a more ancient text, and you can see the edits that happened in the yeah, and, text, right. And a lot of times, the the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, align more with the Septuagint, the Greek yeah. translation of the Old Testament rather than the Masoretic text. Mm-hmm. Now, a good biblical scholar will use all three of exactly. those yeah. to come to an understanding of what is being said. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, in the Septuagint, it says, out of, out of Egypt, I called my children. But the Masoretic text says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Right? So there, the Masoretic text is more favorable to the New We like Testament. that one better. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. So it's not just like, it's not like across the board, the Masoretic text is bad or anything but it's just that you know there were choices that were made by scribes as it was copied and so some things got lost along the way but they're being recovered by scholars now because we have found more texts so anyways just to just if people were like wondering how the heck that (laughs) that happened um but um yeah so you so you alluded to it right you have these 
these divine beings that were, were meant for certain purposes, they fall. Um, but I want to emphasize here that like in the, in Hebrew cosmology, get Milton out of our minds here. Like this wasn't like there was like this fall of angels and then time goes by and then, and then like, and then they come into the garden and then humans fall. It's, it's actually in the Hebrew mind, everybody fell together like at the same time. Right. So that's where you get like, like Stephen DeYoung's, uh, he points out, you know, aptly that you have really four falls of angels identified in the old Testament. So you have like the devil tempting Adam in the garden. Um, but then you also have like the, the incident of the watchers in Genesis six, they fall because they procreate with, they find a way to procreate with uh, human females. They Humans, produce Nephilim, yeah. right? So they produce, produce offspring that are like kind of demigods, um, who themselves then, when they die, their spirits roam the earth as these unclean spirits because they're mixed, right? Anything in the law that is unclean is because it was mixed. And that's and that's really the birth of of what we think of as demons. Demons, right? That's that's really yeah. that's really who we're dealing with most of the time, even in the New Testament in the Gospels, when Jesus is driving out unclean spirits. They're actually dealing right. with the spirits of the Nephilim from Genesis mm-hmm. uh, Genesis six. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the the fourth fall being this Tower of Babel incident, where you have these seventy designated divine beings that were supposed to be a rescue operation, uh, God mm-hmm. sort of working through His creation to bring um, humanity and angelic beings back. But then they mm-hmm. fall, obviously, as you're listening to the prophets and, and everything else. The the rest of the biblical record, they start to receive worship. So, um, right. and then of course, and along the way, you have these three falls of man, where you have Adam falls in the garden through ignorance. Cain falls through active sin, like real sin, murder. Real um, intent to, yeah, yes. He becomes sin. the builder of cities, it says. He's learning new technologies, um, which is then leads you to Babel, right, where they're going to build the big crime of Babel is that they're going to build this tower, and they're going to treat Yahweh the way that, that the other nation, the, the, the way that they would treat the gods, right? Like this. So basically it's like, let's enter into a bargain, right? Like we'll, yeah. we'll build yeah, the, you this ziggurat and we'll give you an idol and then you're going to do mm-hmm. our will, you know? Right. Yeah. It's the, it's the, the, the Latin phrase is do des, right? I do, you do, or scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. The, the, the pagan world had a bargain kind of religion, mm-hmm. um, that, 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 that's just, their system was built upon. Yeah. So this this attempt to bargain with Yahweh and to bring Yahweh down that he may be manipulated. Um, once Yahweh had dispersed the nations, that that attitude of religion was just turned towards these divine beings. So um, all that just to say that then the whole vision of the Hebrew people throughout the Old Testament is that the nations are in captivity to the gods, mm-hmm. to the idols. They're polluting themselves like with idols. They're entering into these bargains with them. Um, and then there's moral evidence that then pops up of that captivity. Um, and that's sort of like, it's really just like anything morally impure to the Jews was basically like everything that the nations are doing, all that stuff, homosexuality, fornication, adultery, uh, war, warmongering right nation building empire building um all of the the stuff that eventually saint augustine will call you know the city of man um mm-hmm. 
So that's sort of the the view that the Hebrews have of, of everything beyond their borders, is that that's the stuff that the Gentiles do, but we are a holy people, we're a, we're a, a nation set apart, and so they have these certain moral codes and ritual codes um, that, that differ from, from them. Yeah, certainly as you come into the Second Temple period. Yeah, and on that front, you know, you... Um, there is a shift that happens in the Second Temple period with with regard to this, this impurity um, that we want to keep our eye on, especially when, when we're coming to the Second Century Fathers and we're talking about you know things like baptism and, and exorcism and things like that. Well, basically, um, in in the law, you know, ritual impurity um, was an everyday fact of life, right? It was it was like getting the sniffles. It was just everybody would have it at some point. Um, hey, I'm ritually impure. <laughs> Chew. Um, <laughs> so, so you know you'd, you, but you'd get it from you normal stay home th- from school. <laughs> you, you, you'd get it from normal things, like so. Your dad died. You got to bury him. Okay, well, yeah, that's fine. But you're going to be ritually impure. You got to wash, wait, and then you come back to the temple. But keep in mind that this, this is, is mo- like, this is mostly for priestly codes, right? I mean, this is mostly yeah, for the yeah, because most of the people are not going to the temple. Um, so most of the time, you know. The vast majority of people would have been ritually impure, um, and the priests would have been the ones who had to be scrupulous about being ritually pure so that they could enter into the temple. Um, yeah. But in Second, Second Temple Judaism, we start to see uh, a couple of shifts there, um, and that forms really the backdrop to a lot of the debates that you see in the New Testament. Um, number one, they they start to sort of apply these what was previously priestly codes of, of, of conduct, um, they apply to everybody. So like everybody yeah. has to be ritually can, pure. And can we say this is, this is like the Pharisaic movement, right? The Pharisaic movement's almost like domesticating the priestly purity laws for all people. Right. Right. Like the fair, the Pharisees tell us that we should wash before we eat, but your disciples aren't washing. Why aren't they washing? Right. That's a great example in the new Testament. And of course, when you look at it, you're like, wait, like, where does it say it in the Torah that you have to wash? <laughs> you know, like, so um, you can see that that they're adding these codes because they're like, well, let's live to an even higher standard here. Everybody should be like like the priests and be mm-hmm. and be ritually pure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of move number one. Move number two is that they start to see um, moral impurity as contagious right so for the first time uh they're seeing like contact with gentiles is akin to contact with like you know a dead body for instance or like eating uh unclean foods or menstruating or whatever right all the things that would make you ritually Mm -hmm. impure um Mm -hmm. all the things that were actually like contagious um they're treating moral impurity this way. So now, because the Gentiles all day long are touching unclean things, polluting themselves with idols, um, you know, having, you know, fluid emissions or whatever, whatever it is, um, because they're in a perpetual state of moral impurity, you touch them, you are, you are uh, in a state of impurity. And so therefore, and so you you need need a cure to this. You need, you need a ritual cure to this. So washing. Yeah. So, and so this is when you see the um, the um, development and, and spread of ritual baths uh, you know, all over ancient Israel, all mm-hmm. over Jerusalem, 
all the pools uh, that are spoken of in the New Testament. That, that, that wasn't a Hebrew thing, you know, going right. back to the first temple and before beyond, uh, back beyond that. It is really something, a development, um, a phenomenon of the second temple period and a, really an obsession of the second temple period. Yeah, yeah, because there's no indication in the, the early, yeah, there's no indication in the early writings of the Old Testament that like coming into just touching a Gentile would like make you impure. You had to wash and wait before you'd go back to the temple. It just isn't there. Yeah. So well, it, well it of course, it, it, it couldn't have been there because remember the the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew people were brought in a lot of different ethnicities into the Hebrew people. You know, they were they were bringing nations into themselves through mm-hmm. marriage. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it couldn't have been that way. Right, right. There's actually, there's a great article. If anyone wants to read up more on this, there's a great article on this by um, <laughs> Dr. Yair Furstenberg. Um, it's called Initiation and the Ritual Purification from Sin Between Qumran and the Apostolic Tradition. But all of this just to say that, like, this is the worldview, right? You have Gentiles are polluted by idols. They're under, they're under captivity to the idols, these, these, uh, these spirits. Um, they their impurity is contagious and therefore there are washings that can, that can uh, cleanse you of this impurity. Now enter in things like John the Baptist, right? Like a washing mm-hmm. for repentance. Like that's very strange, right? Because usually you would only wash cause you're, you're ritually impure, but he was saying be baptized for the forgiveness of sins Right, like be baptized for a baptism unto repentance, repentance. like like moral, like like moral change. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the move that you start. You see, and it's it's pretty ubiquitous though. It's not just the Pharisees because you see it at Qumran, um, but that's the view is that like there is a, there's a cleansing that that can take place in ritual baths for moral impurity as well, and that's mm-hmm. going to set the stage, of course, for eventually Christian baptism. But if you have those two things in your mind as you're moving into the Christian movement. You kind of see, number one, the context for a lot of these debates that Jesus is having. But apart from that, for our purposes here, you're seeing why exorcism and baptism will eventually end up being Merge. linked, linked yeah. together. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. But not to get ahead of ourselves. Um, you do see also, like, at this time in Second Temple Judaism, um, the emergence of Jewish exorcism. So Jews are kind of like messing around with, with uh, evil spirits the same way the Gentiles would. I mean, Gentiles had all kinds of ways of doing this, right? I mean, Yeah, exorcism wasn't invented by Christians. Right, right. yeah. yeah. Um, it's as old as, as, the, as the gods. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a great book. It's uh, Graham Twelve Trees' book. It's called In the Name of Jesus. Um, so a, a, a good portion of some of the content that we're, that we're talking about here today is, is – um, from, from his book. Uh, he has some really good arguments in there, but he does a really great job of showing us kind of the landscape uh, of the era. You know, you do kind of have in most of the, um, sources like Josephus and, and, and others, but you have kind of four identifiable categories of like warding off evil spirits. So you have like what he calls the, the, the magician, um, which for us don't think of like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, you know, Think of pulling a demon out of a dude. <laughs> but, um, no, uh, magician to, to in the ancient world, magic was incantation. Um, so I don't know. Maybe speak to that a little bit, Dan. Like, like what what magic? Well, is in the ancient world. Yeah, I mean, well, so 
uh, pagan religion in general uh, was very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, mechanistic, maybe? Yeah, or... mechanic, me- mechanistic, but um, goodness. <laughs> empirical. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Sheesh. Um, empirical in, in the sense that um, you, you, would, you, would, you would say something or do something, and if it worked, you would continue to say and do those things mm-hmm. until it didn't work. And then you had to go back and adjust your saying and your doing in order for something to work again. So an incantation would be used, um, an action would be used, perhaps to an object. cast out a demon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if it worked great, cool, that's what we're going to go with. And we're going to pass it down to our sons and our daughters, and they're going to go with it until it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have to redo it. We have to change it up. Yeah, yeah. And and it would just be normal. Thing, like, hey, like, take a basil plant and wave it over three times and then, like, you know, bring in a bull's testicle or something. <laughs> it's just, like, yeah. really wild stuff, right? No, I think that was exactly it. Yeah, that no, that that's one of them for sure. Um, but, yeah, so, so that's kind of that's kind of the thing. Like you have the augers in ancient Rome, they would keep a big Mm -hmm. compendium of all the stuff that had worked throughout the ages for certain things. And it was very meticulous. So that's, that's the magician. Um, then you have kind of like what he calls the charismatic magician where it's, it's not only is he using like sort of objects and incantations, but also uses the sheer force of personality, uh, to like annoy a demon. Um, so you have that. You also have like just, charismatic like not bringing any incantations or objects or anything like that but like just the sheer force of like threatening a demon somebody or, with gravitas or yeah or trying to bargain him, or, or trying to bargain the demon out um mm. you know like well if you do this like then we'll go do this for you right or whatever it is um the final which when you which when you think about think about it that that would work right right a demon, a demon <laughs> would bargain um if it if it meant uh, honor to it or or whatever else mm-hmm. um, it could do to draw attention away from the demon knowing the true god yeah yeah so that's 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 the third motif the final motif that you see in ancient sources uh pagan and jewish is the power encounter um and that's just to adjure or bind or like charge the demon like in the name of of something in, in the name of some power um, there's actually, uh, there's a reference in Josephus, I think it is, where, um, a Jewish exorcist actually tries to adjure a demon in the name of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So which, which by the way, don't tell me there wasn't intercessions in, in ancient Judaism, by the way. Boink. They're um, wanting Solomon to intercede on their behalf. Very good. That, hey, Swan Swana, that you, you can add that to your argument. <laughs> So, um, so those are like, yeah, your, your four categories and everybody's doing it. Um, pagans and Jews alike, they're all doing, everybody's doing it. Yeah. Everybody's doing this. Well, enter in Jesus. So, um, let's talk a little bit why, uh, about why not only Jesus, but also his followers form of exorcism was new and different. Um, so Many scholars have pointed out the fact, obviously, that Jesus is not only, like, teaching of his own authority, as the synoptics say, but he's exercising demons of his own authority. He's doing it in this way that had never really been seen before. Um, Nobody was going to say, 
I tell you go, and then like immediately it's gone. Like like literally, we don't have sources no. outside of the gospels. Yeah, and so much so much a show of force this is that Jesus is even shown in in in, in instances using like a permissive will for them to go. <laughs> so they're like, okay, well, like, let us. Can we go into the pigs? He's like, yeah, you can go to the pigs. It, yeah, and that's it's interesting, right? Because it colors um, the charge that Jews have uh, to Jesus, and that is, well, he, he controls demons uh, by the power of demons, uh, you know, and and because it seems like, well, if the demons are subject to, yeah, well, if but but also if they're subject to him, well, maybe he's maybe he's uh, the power behind him is a demon, exactly, you know, or a lead demon, because he's not he's not invoking. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not invoking Solomon. He's just saying, "Yeah, go ahead, do that," or, or, or like, "I command you to be silent." Um, and they mm-hmm. are. So it's like, okay, well, if the demons are just willing to obey this guy, then he must also he must be above them in the hierarchy of being, you know, <laughs> among the demons. Yeah. Um, so that's why that. And it, and by the, yeah. yeah, and um, and by the way, the, um, that. That Jesus's name was effective in 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 getting rid of demons uh, is shown by the fact that there are episodes. I I, don't, I can't remember where exactly, uh, but there are episodes um, in rabbinical writings of certain rabbis using Jesus's name just to get rid of a demon. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah, and on, the, so, on the pages of Acts too, right? Uh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Um. You also see this very strange thing where Jesus is like, not only is he doing this in his own authority, but he's loaning out his authority even, right? Like to the to the seventy, and yeah, yeah. And, so you see that in the Gospel of Luke, um, which it's not a coincidence. Jesus appoints seventy uh, disciples, the apostles among them, to go out mm-hmm. and preach the kingdom of God, right? And then and then. When the disciples all come back, they start reporting, "Hey, we, you know, we were casting out demons mm-hmm. when we were out there." Um, so, a very interesting epi- uh, episode that's there because, uh, like we said, it's Jesus is sending out of the seventy references that hidden lost tradition of the, the seventy nations being under the dominion of the gods mm-hmm. of the seventy gods, and so Jesus is signaling to the world, but his disciples immediately you now are going on a mission to reclaim the nations back for God most high. What was, what was asked for in Psalm 82, you now are going to go out and do. Mm-hmm. And so it's part and parcel of, of the mission of, of, of God. And it's everything that Daniel saw in his vision, right? Where he said, you know, he, you see the idol and then the mountain comes, smashes it, right? Or a little stone smashes it. And then it grows up into a huge mountain. Well, that's, that's the coming in of the kingdom. Um, that's the new world order of Christ. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so Jesus sees uh, sending out the seventy and these early uh, exorcism ministries as kind of the the front line of the ushering in of the kingdom and the dispelling of darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and he portrays that to the people around him so that it's very peculiar because no other like common exorcist running around the ancient world was like, we're, we're advancing the kingdom here. <laughs> we're, we're, we're tearing down the kingdom of these demons. Um, this is very, uh, unique to Jesus. Um, Graham, Graham, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Graham, Graham actually, actually has a lot of, uh, other distinctives of Jesus that I think are pretty fascinating. I think it's good to bring up here. Um, so, 
he notes that there's no evidence that Jesus used or collected any existing artifacts or a library of effective incantations. So he didn't he didn't practice any magic. There's no instance of him practicing magic. Um, he also expresses zero interest in controlling them or like trying to like manipulate them or to like um, ensure protection from unwanted demons like through yeah. through magic. Right? Can I get a can I break in just for a second yeah. here and, and ask a question? Uh, that looks forward to the, um, I guess the um, the destiny of these evil spirits, right? D- Jesus isn't um, condemning them right away, like you like you said. He's almost just like brushing them off. Get out of here. Go over there. Do mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Um, does that have something to do with their ultimate destiny? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, so it's funny because like in in the book of Jubilees. Um, you have this you have this scene where the unclean spirits so these would be like the Nephilim of Genesis 6 who died and their spirits are now just menacing people and wandering the earth mm-hmm. they actually present themselves to Yahweh and they they ask again these are bargainers these fallen spirits are they want to bargain they even want to bargain with God which is why they're always doing it in the Old Testament like where they, where Satan comes up to God and like well hey well, let's talk about job you know like let me uh you know let me tempt him let me let me you know so um, they do the same thing in, in, uh, Jubilees. They, they come up and they say, you know, bef- before you throw us into the pit, give us some time to go around the earth and to just like menace and torment the wicked. Right. And God permits it like in his permissive mm-hmm. will, he allows that to happen. And you see mm-hmm. that pop up even in the gospels where they, they come to Jesus and they say, well, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to torment us before the time though? Right, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and and this this persistent uh, uh, title of unclean spirit clearly is a reference to to jubilees. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is all all these other sources, even outside of the New Testament, help put color to Jesus's exorcism ministry and and the ministry of the apostles. Um, he he also doesn't um, take interest in like exercising places or buildings. Uh, which is very weird uh, because that's what most ancient exorcists did. Um, he doesn't use prayer as a means of exercising. So he doesn't like, you know, say, Yahweh, I pray that you would, you know, he just does it. Um, and he, and and the biggest thing is that he never mentions in an exorcism the source of the power by which he's exercising these demons, which again, if he was doing like this, what Graham calls the power encounter, he mm-hmm. would do. He would say, in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or something. But instead, he just uses the emphatic I. Um, and, you know, and only in, like, other conversations later in, like, Matthew twelve twenty eight or Luke eleven twenty does he tell his disciples that, you know, I'm doing it by the finger of God. <laughs> you know, like, um, mm-hmm. so. Like, okay, okay, man. Yeah, right, whatever you say. <laughs> um, now, of course, when he sends his apostles out, like in you know Mark nine thirty eight, Luke ten seventeen, the apostles, not being God, are using power encounter, so a much more common uh, motif. But what's unique again, what's what's singularly different is that they're doing it in the name of Jesus. Like this is a new mm-hmm. name by which demons are going to be cast out, and even pagans are going to see that like it works, which mm-hmm. is why you have magician type exorcists in the book of acts among the Jews 
just like, okay, if it works, right, like, then we'll, we'll say in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, right? Yeah. There's a, yeah, there's, a, there's, there's also instances, which maybe we can get to, but uh, in some of the fathers where uh, Romans themselves are calling, pagan Romans are just calling Christians over to get rid of the demons, not for yeah. conversion, just because they know that Christians have the power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so when you come to the book of Acts now, um, kind of tr- trying to move through the, the New Testament record, get to the second century, um, you see it up and down the book of Acts, this mindset. That number one, the Gentiles are in bondage to the idols and and that they need to be freed from it. And number two, that exorcism is effective in, in accomplishing that. One among many ways of accomplishing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they have this idea that like – that's why in Acts 15, for instance, right? You, you, they're, they're, they're telling the, to turn away from the works that proceeded from these bargains that your ancestors made with the idols, right? That's their only message to the, to the God fearers, like to the Gentiles is like abstain from, you know, like sexual impurity. Um, don't eat things strangled, right? Like food sacrificed to idols. Um, and, and then of course you do always have that debate about meat sacrificed to idols because that was the means by which they entered into bargains with these gods, with these demons. Mm-hmm. So you can see it's like kind of just turn away from those those moral implications of the covenants. Uh break break your covenant with these these idols, right? Yeah. Um there's a great you verse. Read in, some of, yeah, read some of these. Yeah, well there's a great verse in Acts twenty six. So Acts twenty six, sixteen through eighteen. This is a good this is a good uh verse for understanding the mindset. So this is Jesus um talking to Paul. So he says, But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So in other words, I'm sending you to break the bargains, like the covenant mm-hmm. between the Gentiles and Satan and, and the gods, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sin, so that they may receive, well, baptism, right? <laughs> that they may be baptized and brought in. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. right there you're kind of already sort of seeing a pattern of like we need to dispel Satan, the kingdom of Satan, then they need to be baptized, and then they will be a part of the people that I'm establishing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see that theme then throughout. It's trickled throughout Paul's letters then. Mm-hmm. He really takes that mission to heart. He is the <clears throat> apostle to the Gentiles, and part of that mission is releasing them from the bondage that they are in um, mm-hmm. and the subjection they are in to the demons and to Satan. Yeah, and you can see right off the bat in like Colossians, Colossians one sixteen, you can see the densely textured view of like demonology, you know, and cosmology that Paul is assuming, and and assuming that his audience even knows. He says, mm-hmm. "For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him." Right, so, so we we tend to think that like 
thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities refers to like Caesar only and like, you know, uh, secular powers. Those are very specific words um, that are in Jewish cosmology for different types of divine beings. Well, and oftentimes it's the the throne refers to, like Paul says, both the visible and the invisible. So behind the emperor is a, is a demon is a demon behind, Mm -hmm. you know, behind this King is a demon. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And the idea that demons are associated directly with specific humans or that angels are directly um, assigned to specific humans is a belief of the early church. Right. Yeah. And uh, the best, uh, you, uh, do you want to read Romans one? I'll do Ephesians. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Romans one is great because there's an argument to be made there that um, in the act, when, when Paul describes God giving the Gentiles over, to do what they wanted to do in the lust of their hearts, that this is also a kind of commentary on the Tower of Babel incident and everything that fall, that, that falls from that. So, like, Paul basically just, like, summarizes where the, the state of the Gentiles, right? Right, because, because, of course, you could say that, well, God lost control of the nations, but what, what Paul is saying is that, no, God gave them over <laughs> to yes. what they wanted to do. Exactly. So uh, this is a, a longer quote, but I think it's just it's very important for demonstrating the mindset um, as as they're going out to to perform exorcisms in, as part of as part of the mission that this is their mindset to the Gentiles. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So that is, the view. <laughs> is Paul's take on the nations. <laughs> um, but that, that honestly, that right there is Paul's version of like St. Augustine's, the city of God. 
Um, he even uses the word impurity. Um, they dishonored their bodies uh, and mm -hmm. gave themselves to impurity. So you can see Paul's still a good Pharisee in a way, right? He's still um, seeing the situation that the Gentiles really are in. Now, of course, mm -hmm. just for people who think that that was really harsh, the next chapter Paul starts saying, but there's no partiality with God. That's the message <laughs> that God is going to save them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then the probably the uh, the famous, uh, very famous one uh, is Ephesians uh, chapter six. Then, so Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says, "Finally, draw your strength from the Lord, and from His mighty power. Put on the armor of God, so that you may be able to stand firm against the tactics of the devil. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood." but with the principalities, with the powers, with the world rulers of this present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens. Therefore put on the armor of God, that you may be able to resist on the evil day, and having done everything, to hold your ground. So stand fast with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, and your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield, to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Yeah. So you see once again that um, calling out specifically what they're, what they're fighting against, you know, it, it's see when you, when you're, when you're looking at um, uh, like for instance, the Maccabees, right? When, when you're reading the, the book of Maccabees, the, the Judean and Jewish uh, view of their struggle was very much against just the worldly powers. Um, Qumran shows a little something a little different, and these variant forms of, of Judaism show something a little more apocalyptic, um, granted. But uh, you, what you're seeing here is the view of the Christians is that um, what lies behind Caesar is what we're fighting. Yep. Yep. And, and, and it's not something that we need to wait to act upon. It's the, 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 I would say the second temple Jewish approach was reactive to the mm -hmm. demonic world and the evil spirits, right? They're bothersome. We got to do something about it right now. Get to get rid of them. Right. Jesus's approach, the apostles approach, the Christian approach is proactive. We are now actively engaging. And that engagement, that battle, that war is fundamentally rooted in the church's mission. Yeah, and it's it's um, it's colored by a clarity of understanding of of the realm that they're that they're approaching. That's the other thing is that it's not like nebulous. They have they're, they're it's pretty clear the the ranks and files of these well, that, that, these look, powers. That's some of the that's some of the great impact that the fathers are going to have. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, in in the in the Roman world, the the spiritual world was ambiguous. Evil spirits were ambiguous. Were they mm -hmm. evil? Were they good? Well, I don't know. Sometimes this, sometimes that. I don't know. Um, just let them do what they do, and if they cause trouble, try and get rid of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Christians are, like you said, the Christians are coming with a great clarity, and they know exactly what's going on, right. and they're trying to lift the blinders off of everybody's eyes. Right. <clears throat> That's why you even see, like, in uh, Jude's letter that he's very specific about certain demonic powers like he says and the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling 
he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's referring specifically, like, right, right, like, not to the Nephilim, not to Satan, like, the Watchers. Like, he's literally identifying. Like, it's that the, the, second, yep. it's that second layer, right? Like, that, that refers yeah. to the Watchers. The so, angelic, the gods, the divine beings, yeah. Yeah, so this is, uh, th- there's a clarity of focus uh, as they go out to meet the Gentile world. Um, that just no other, like the Gentiles themselves, yeah, just did not have. Um, so that's going to be something that's yeah. going to mark them out, you know. So, um, all right. So looking at now moving into the, the, the church age, let's move into the second century. So cool. um, I guess the overall observation that um, not only scholars see, but, you know, like you and I would see as well, is that the earliest documents, like the apostolic fathers, um, coming out of the first century and into the early second, the interest in exorcism in these sources seems to be either muted or even sometimes just completely non-existent. It's just like, it's almost like quiet, you know, after you come out of something as apocalyptic and crazy as what you're reading in the New Testament, you know, something like the book of Revelation, you know. And then you you come into these apostolic fathers and you're like, where's the demons now? Like, what what happened? You know, um, so I don't know. Like, yeah, like, so it's 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 led it's led. Um, what's that? Let's like talk about like why that might be. Right? Yeah, because it's that's yeah. A so, well, I was gonna say it, it's led it's led to some scholars to to say there there was a gap in in the church's uh, exorcism exorcistic movement mm-hmm. uh, where you had Jesus and his disciples were doing their exorcising thing. And then the church stopped doing it and didn't feel like they needed to do it. And then all of a sudden you enter this majority pagan world with a majority Gentile church now. And then they kind of re-up, uh, re-institute exorcisms and, and the casting out of, of, of demons. Um, that's fine. That, that's, one, that's one argument. Um, the, what we would point to, obviously, with, with other scholars would be that uh, the, the type of documents change. So... The documents of the sub-apostolic era, the apostolic fathers, you know, we're looking at uh, Didache, the letter of Barnabas, uh, Ignatius's letters, um, Shepherd of Hermas. What do all those documents have in common? Well, they're all internal documents. Mm-hmm. They're, they're dealing mostly with unity, uh, structure, um, morality. That's what they're concerned with. They're, they're concerned with their closed community. So... We shouldn't, I guess, expect a lot of talk about how they evangelize, how they go about their business to the nations, because that's not the concern of those specific sources mm-hmm. uh, per se. Yeah, it's still a, it's still a relatively insulated community with a whole set of apostolic assumptions that they don't need to talk about because they all they already know it and believe it, right? And like, um, they don't need to like talk about exorcism or any of that because it's a, it's just part and parcel of what they're doing and yeah and, i mean there's and, there's a hundred there's a hundred things that they don't talk about right um because there's only so few documents for those decades and again we'll always remind people we're only talking about in the thousands we're talking about i don't know 10 20 thousand christians in the entire empire yeah um of 50 million or whatever it is so yeah, I mean, we just don't have a lot of evidence. So, yeah, some things are not going to be mentioned. I would say that's more likely than saying, well, it just ceased to exist. A, a tradition that Jesus himself laid down, the apostles we are clearly continuing, and then it just disappears. That I don't think that holds uh, holds water. 
Right. And and, and even, even when we're talking about Gentiles, because it's not like these sources don't talk to or about Gentiles. Um, but again, this is a time now when uh, the rabbis, the emergent rabbis, and uh, Christian leaders are combating for God-fearers. So, like, we're not yet at the point where they're like, let's let's get out there and let, let's, like, convert, you know, all the pagan Romans. Um, they're they're trying to, to – they're kind of having a, a peeing match <laughs> you know, about who's going to yeah. win – who's going to win the uh, – the battle, the yeah. Fears. The battle is still the battle is still who is the supreme Judaism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, cool. Yeah. So when you're looking at like Clement, the letter of Clement, right? Nothing. Like you're, there's there's not anything there about exorcism. You know, the shepherd firm is nothing there. Um, what about the Didache? I mean, I feel like the the Didache is nothing explicit, but there there are some things there that that seem to imply um, exorcism. Yeah. Uh, again, yeah, you, you may, you might have to get a little creative, but um, you know, in the baptism section of the Didache, uh, it calls for a fasting to, to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and fasting certainly comes to have the connotation of uh, as, as an exorcistic activity. Mm-hmm. That's what fasting is. And you see it in Jesus as well, right? That that one, that evil spirit, that demon only comes out by prayer and fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so he, he even it, says it, that they go try to find waterless places. <laughs> yeah. So so if we're allowed to uh, to think about fasting in that way, well, then then you do have uh, a, re- a reference in the Didache to an exorcistic activity, uh, and that is fasting right before baptism. Right. And we do have a reference in a Gnostic writing, um, contemporaneous with, well, maybe with uh, later parts of the Didache. Um, it's Theodotus of Alexandria. So in his Excerpta Ex Theodoto, um, which is, it's actually preserved in fragments through different fathers. Uh, Clement of Alexandria is one of them. Um, but he actually says in there that since unclean spirits often go down into the water with some, therefore let there be fastings, supplications, prayers, raising of hands, and kneelings. So he himself is even saying that like the reason why we fast before baptism is to help also like ward off the unclean spirits. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. can kind of see that even if there's not yet an explicit exorcism rite attached to baptism, um, that right there, the fact that they are fasting before as a preparatory rite before baptism is is precisely where an exorcism rite would fit right in um already mm-hmm. you know yeah. yeah yeah and it doesn't exclude there's there's two types of exorcism there's exorcism for catechumens there's exorcisms mm-hmm. uh, before you be- become baptized but then there's exorcisms there's mm-hmm. one off uh you know I'm going to this person's house cuz there's demoniacs there and yeah. they're possessed and we need to excise the spirit Mm-hmm. So two things are going on uh, at once. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, Everett uh, Everett Ferguson here. It's this book here. So is he um, over there? Yeah, he's right here. <laughs> Take a picture. <laughs> uh, it's a magisterial work. I mean, it's baptism in the early church. It's massive. It's the work. If you're looking for bap- baptism, understanding of the early church, that's the. Yeah, that's the I mean, uh, it's eight hundred something pages. 
uh, on well, he ha- and he has a, was he a Calvinist or was he Calvinist? He was, or? I think he's Church of Christ. He has a high view of baptism. Oh, high view himself. of baptism. Yeah, high yeah. view of baptism. And you can kind of see how these these scholars will kind of you know play against each other because you have someone like Graham, you know, who's um, at least I assume is more on the evangelical side of things, um, and then you have someone like uh, Ferguson, and they're both reading the letter to Barnabas, the letter of Barnabas, um, and they come out <laughs> like kind of on, two opposite ends on opposite ends. Yeah, because. Yeah. Um, Stop, you've heard this before, but, you know, Graham Twelve Tree comes out with the interpretation like, yeah, there's no mention of exorcism. It's just exorcism just isn't as important as the, as the word being preached, <laughs> you know, like the message of Christ going out and being preached. Um, and exorcism will eventually act as sort of like a confirmation of the word uh, and the message that's being preached. Well, I don't know. You look at chapters 11 and 16 in the Epistle of Barnabas and it's i mean there's a lot going on there if you if you really mm-hmm. are looking and Everett Ferguson sees it too um so chapter 11 describes baptism um of course linking it to the forgiveness of sins and and conversion um and then chapter 16:8 starts uh by referring back to chapter 11 and it says before we believed in god the dwelling place of our heart was full of idolatry and was a house of demons. And then he goes on to say, but then after having the forgiveness of sins, baptism, we became a holy temple and a dwelling place for the Holy Mm -hmm. spirit. Mm -hmm. So again, this idea that like, um, we've been purged of the idols and the demons, uh, and have now been baptized and now made a temple of God. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because there's these little echoes, right? of uh, exorcism and baptism already being tied together. Mm-hmm. Uh, bec- and that's interesting uh, to me because the first explicit references to an exorcism rite during baptism, you don't hear from it until Tertullian and then third century fathers. Mm-hmm. So these little whispers of it are interesting because it is suggesting that it, it was quite early when they knew that exorcism had to, had to occur with baptism. Right, right. And, and, and it's not... Um... It's not like it's it, the the record's totally silent on exorcism, like casting out demons actively, uh, apart from like baptism and initiation rites. But you know, we have to remember that we have Mark chapter sixteen nine through twenty, which any Bible. I mean, even if you just pick up your Bible, not maybe not any, but I mean, you pick up your Bible, you look at it. A lot of times, that will be bracketed off because it's it doesn't mm-hmm. appear in the earliest manuscripts. So, so and, yeah, they, they think it's a second century document. Yeah, and early second, second century, century. Early second century because uh, you already have like Aranias quotes it in, in total. Um, so, you know, it, it, it has a textual tradition that likely goes back to Rome in the early second century, which that's where Mark was. <laughs> right? so, uh, so someone along the way was like, oh, interesting. Well, this belongs in Mark's gospel. Um <clears throat> But uh, basically what it says there is that signs will accompany those who believe. This is when Jesus is telling the the apostles that signs will accompany those who believe. And by using my name, they will cast out demons, Mark 16, 17. Um, It's also the section where it talks about Mary Magdalene having seven demons cast out of her Mm. by Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. you can see that like this source is early second century. And it's still talking about how it's still this very is much like, on the mind of the church. Yeah, this is still a pivotal yeah. part of what we do mm-hmm. um, in our mission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
That's so, a yeah, good point. That's that's the that's the early second century. Let's get into like the mid and mid to late second century. What are we what are we seeing? I'm gonna take a sip and sit back. <laughs> what are we seeing? Yeah, like oh. I don't know. Do we wanna start with Justin Martyr or <laughs> Aranias? Or... Right, let's, let's let's get into it. Um so all the fathers um are pretty much in agreement about that whole illicit union thing that the the demons are evil malicious uh spirits um that are the offspring of those um unions between the angelic and, beings yeah. watchers and and uh human uh females um so that's actually a pretty ubiquitous tradition in the church uh in the belief of the of the fathers um the also the, the, there's also the idea uh clearly from the fathers that the Gentile gods are demons. Mm-hmm. That these these are demonic forces. So they don't necessarily have the idea, like we laid out with the divine council, of like this other layer of sons of God, you know, lords, right. uh, angels. Uh, but they are recognizing the fact that the the pagan gods are demons, demons who are tricking the pagans into into worshiping them. That's across the board. Whether you're looking at Justin, Irenaeus. Clement, uh, Tertullian, Munitius Felix. Yeah, which is huge. It's significant because there is, before Christianity, there's an alternative tradition, even in like Hebrew writings and, and, and Jewish writings, that um, the gods are no gods at all. Mm-hmm. Like they're nothing. They're dumb idols. They're, they're, you know, there's nothing yeah. there. Right. Right. And that, that would be the, the not correct way to interpret that <laughs> phrase. <laughs> What what they mean is that like they're nothing as in they don't mean anything mm-hmm. they they, you know, they don't have a power they're not power um, they're powerless right they're powerless powerless before God um, so that's how the fathers approach it because you will get fathers who say that that the gods are nothing your idols are empty they're nothing uh, but they mean by that is that they're demons and they're filled with demons mm-hmm. that's another thing the fathers will talk about um, a number of them that uh, idols statues places and not just people are inhabited by demons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're exercising them, you have to exercise places and idols mm-hmm. and people, uh, not just, um, not just people. So that, you know, we said that Jesus, uh, uh, from what we have with the gospels, he's mostly focused on exercising human, the uh, human element humans. Uh, but we see the church practicing the exercise of places and, and objects, um, as well. Another interesting thing in the fathers um, that again makes you think that the tie between exorcism and baptism are um, is there in the earliest uh, uh, centuries of the church is that they they use a um, anytime they're describing exorcism they use what we what we would call a creedal statement. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll say things like, "Oh, we exorcise demons in the name of Jesus." who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, mm. who was born of the Virgin Mary. They'll, they'll say things like that. Um, and we know from later liturgical texts of the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th centuries up to the present day, that that's exactly what happens in baptism. There's a, The creed is, is said, right? The name of Jesus is said. The creed is said. Renunciation of the devil. All of that is taking place. So there's another suggestion. And that's that's in St. Justin Martyr. It's in Arnaeus. Uh, it's in a number of, 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 the, of the fathers. Um, they're also aware of Jewish exorcism. 
the, the, the church fathers of the second century. They know that, that Jews are, are also trying to exercise demons. Mm-hmm. And uh, they even say that, well, sometimes it works because you're saying uh, the demon needs to be released by the power of the God, the God of, of Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> right. um, so, so that's there um, as well. We, we also see exorcism being used as a, um, an evangelizing tool. It's it's a way to bring people into into the faith. Now it would be it would be to overstate uh, the position to say that if, um, exorcism was bringing loads of people into the church, but it is just part of that uh, part of the ministry and the the mission to the Gentile um, nations. The other thing you'll notice, and this is one of the things that I absolutely loved reading, um, especially from Tertullian or Munitius Felix, it's the confidence with which the fathers speak about the demons mm-hmm. and about exorcism. I mean, they're not pulling any punches. They're going right at the throat of Roman religion, the heart of Roman religion, right? Roman religion was about, uh, you know, oracles and epiphanies and the anger of the gods. Uh, the anger of the gods was all part of it, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the Romans knew the gods could be angry and yeah. fickle and all those things. That's why they're trying to make bargains with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I love about the fathers of the second and third centuries is that they're going right at that. And, and they're telling the Romans that your whole system is demonic. Your oracles, your prophecies, all that's demonic. And even when you think those prophecies are coming true, even when you think your incantation worked, that's just the demon moving you ever deeper and deeper under their control. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's this whole... They'll give a little recasting. and take a little. Yeah, yeah it's this whole recasting of the whole cosmology of the pagan world. And they're not, they're not you know, mincing words uh, uh, in, these, in these sources. And so it's, it, we'll, you know, we'll go through some of these. I'll read some of these off um, from, the, from the fathers. Um, so that's the challenge to the to the pagan world. You know, the the Romans uh, and the Greeks had the idea of of um, daemons or the the genius, the genius of a person, mm-hmm. right? So Romans believed in the the genius of a person when they when they worshipped the emperor, for example, they were really worshiping the genius, which was the accompanying spirit of that person, right? Okay. Um, and the, the, the daemons for the Greeks were kind of just ambiguous spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were kind of intermediary spirits that we're not sure what their role is really, but they can be good sometimes. It can be bad. They can be menacing. But they're, they not necessarily, be, yeah. they're not necessarily unclean or evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- the Christians are throwing all that out, completely turning it uh, upside down. Uh, you know, when you thought things were going well for you, it's actually just demons tricking you in, uh, into into. Um, it's almost like a it's almost like them. a sixth sense moment, you know, where it's like <laughs> it's like you know Bruce Willis is going about his his day, but at the end there's like this like dude you you've been dead the whole time, you know, and it, like yeah. and, and then the whole movie then you like go back and you look and you're like wait yeah that's why that door didn't open that's why this that's why that, <laughs> but I mean it's. It's silly, but I mean, I, I that is what they're doing. Like they're literally putting an entire interpretation onto pagan religion. They're not just discounting it and saying like your religion is nonsense. I mean, this you know, you, you it's all made up, right? They're saying no, this is real. What you guys are mm-hmm. doing is real and yep. is dangerous, and it was inherited from your fathers, and it has enslaved you. Look at all the things that it has wrought. 
right? And and so it's you can see, you know, just like how impactful that would be for quite a few people, you know, who are already like maybe right. mad at the gods, you know, for something. Let's do a little Tertullian reading. How about that? I'm fine with that. Play some play some music while I try and find this. First. Okay, so this is uh, <laughs> Jeopardy music. <laughs> uh, okay, no, this is this is good stuff. This is worth this is worth uh, hanging out with us for just a second as I read through this. Uh, so this is Apology, uh, chapter twenty three from Tertullian. Um, we're, you know, we're talking about the second century mostly, but uh, for this topic, we're, we're bleeding into the third. Tertullian's mm-hmm. kind of that bridge figure. Uh, but this is this is kind of the language that the Christians are using uh, in their apologies, in their words to the Roman world. So he's writing his apology to Roman authorities. And he says, he challenges them directly. He says, let a person be brought before your tribunals who is plainly under demoniacal possession. The wicked spirit, bidden to speak by a follower of Christ, will as readily make the truthful confession that he is a demon as elsewhere he has falsely asserted that he is a god. Or if you will, let there be produced one of the god-possessed, as they are supposed, who inhaling at the altar conceive divinity from the fumes, who are delivered of it by wrenching, or by retching, who vent forth in agonies of gasping. If on the one hand they are really gods, why do they pretend to be demons? Is it from fear of us? In that case, your divinity is put in subjection to Christians, and you surely can never ascribe deity to that which is under authority of man, nay, of its very enemies. If on the other hand they are demons, or even angels, why inconsistently with this do they presume to set themselves forth as acting the part of gods? For as beings who put themselves out as gods would never willingly call themselves demons, if they were gods indeed, that they might not thereby in fact abdicate their dignity. So those whom you know to be no more than demons would not dare to act as gods if those whose names they take and use were really divine. For they would not dare to treat with disrespect the higher majesty of beings whose displeasure they would feel was to be dreaded. So this divinity of yours is no divinity. For if it were, it would not be pretended to by demons and it would not be denied by gods. But since on both sides there is concurrent acknowledgement that they are not gods, gather from this that there is but a single race, I mean the race of demons, the real race in both cases. Let your search then now be after gods, for those whom you had imagined to be so you find to be spirits of evil. All the authority and power we have over them is from our naming the name of Christ, and recalling to their memory the woes with which God threatened them at the hands of Christ as judge, and which they expect one day to overtake them. Fearing Christ in God and God in Christ, they become subject to the servants of God and Christ. So at our touch, our breathing, overwhelmed by the thought and realization of those judgment fires, they leave at our command the bodies they have entered, unwilling and distressed, and before your very eyes are put to open shame. You believe them when they lie. Give credit to them, then, when they speak the truth about themselves. No one plays the liar to bring disgrace upon his own head, but for the sake of honor, rather. You give readier confidence to people making confessions against themselves than denials in their own behalf. It has not been an unusual thing, accordingly, 
for those testimonies of your deities to convert men to Christianity. For in giving full belief to them, we are led to believe in Christ. So he starts off with a challenge. He's challenged them. Hey, bring, bring a possessed guy to the tribunal. I'll bring a Christian. And we'll, we'll drive the demon right out, right in front of you. <laughs> and then he's calling him out at the end. You know full well that when we cast demons out, it brings people into the church. For mm-hmm. your eyes have seen it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's, just, it's just good stuff. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Um, so, so the whole system um, of pagan religion is being challenged uh, directly by the fathers of um, the second century. Right. And again, just to, to highlight for listeners, <clears throat> um, the reason why we see this proliferation of stuff about exorcism from 150 onwards is because now the church is taking taking the message, taking the gospel out outside of this kind of like insulated and incubated um, context of like intra-Jewish debates and like God-fearing Gentiles and trying to keep God-fearing Gentiles in the church. They're now moving out into like really uncharted territory. And, um, and again, that captivity of the Gentiles is something that has been perpetuated by the tradition um, that they receive from the apostles and which the apostles receive from just the Hebrew tradition. Um, so that's kind of the context of, of the second century. Um, but I think, are there any others that you wanted to, to highlight, uh, before we, um, start to wrap I up? Mean, we, I mean, get through some wrap we up can, points? I mean, um, I, I kind of like Munitius Felix in Octavius, uh, 27. Um, he kind of describes demons and, and mm. what they do in their activities. Yeah. But again, like Tertullian, uh, really going right at, um, right at Roman religion and mm-hmm. calling it out for, for what it is. Yeah. Um, See, in the culmination of this process though, um, where we're eventually going to get to is not only enshrining it as like an office, like there's an office of exorcist with their own, you know, rights, um, but that it is going to be a permanent fixture of the baptismal rite itself because they were baptizing mm-hmm. the nations and, and these people had, had all in some way or another been compromised um, by mm-hmm. pollution with these, these forces. Yeah, I mean, somebody like Tertullian would even say that uh, you were born um, under the subjection of an accompanying demon. Mm-hmm. You're, you're born into that, and that needs to be excised uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a Gentile. You mentioned exorcists, specific, the minor order or mm-hmm. office of exorcists. Um, probably begins in the sometime in the early third century. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saint Cyprian of Carthage, by the mid third century, is already talking about specific exorcists um, in the church, whereas someone like Origen actually um, is still speaking about um, how any Christians can be exorcists. That you know any lay Christian um, can exorcise um, a demon, and he says actually sometimes it's uh, the exorcists are are some of the most uneducated among us. Mm. who show forth God's power in our own weakness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, as a witness. So, yeah, so the third century is really that time when the office starts to to take hold. And we certainly have witness of that, um, like I said, in North Africa, but also don't forget the famous letter of uh, Pope Cornelius um, in the 250s, where he's writing about um, 
kind of everybody who makes up the Roman church at that time. Right. And he says that there are 52 um, exorcists and, and doorkeepers in the Church of Rome. Um, and so you can kind of estimate that there's maybe 20 or 30 exorcists, minor order of that office, just in the Church of Rome. So the point here is that there's this, um, as, they, as the church moves into the greater Gentile world, the need and the use of exorcism and exorcists grows as well. And we would expect that. That's what we would expect as the Christians enter into the nations. They're going to need exorcists to do the work. Mm-hmm. So why don't we go ahead and wrap up the, the narrative of the second century um, with Minutius Felix, uh, the excerpt that you have. Yeah, this is a great one because, like I said, uh, if we're going to talk about the, the Christian message hitting at the heart of Roman religion, right, that, that there's, you know, their oracles and their traditions and their sacrifices and all those things, and the Christians are flipping it up on them saying that's all demon stuff. Um, it's a shock to, uh, to, to Rome. Um, and so this is a great example in this excerpt from Octavius by Minicius Felix, early 3rd century document, um, where he calls out um, all these so-called oracles and the power behind them and what evil spirits do to the Romans. So he says, These impure spirits, therefore, the demons, as is shown by the Magi, the philosophers, and by Plato, consecrated under statues and images, lurk there, and by their afflatus attain the authority as of a present deity. While in the meantime they are breathed into the prophets, while they dwell in the shrines, while sometimes they animate the fibers of the entrails, talking about the augurs, Mm -hmm. control the flights of birds, direct the lots, are cause of oracles involved in many falsehoods, for they are both deceived and they deceive, inasmuch as they are both ignorant of the simple truth and for their own ruin they confess not that which they know. Thus they weigh men downwards from heaven and call them away from the true God to material things. They disturb the life, render all men unquiet, creeping also secretly into human bodies with subtlety as being spirits. They feign diseases, alarm the minds, wrench about the limbs, that they may constrain men to worship them. Being gorged with the fumes of altars, or the sacrifices of cattle, that by remitting what they had bound, they may seem to have cured it. These raging maniacs also, whom you see rush about in public, are moreover themselves prophets without a temple. Thus they rage, thus they rave, thus they are whirled around. In them also there is a like instigation of the demon, but there is a dissimilar occasion for their madness. From the same causes also arise those things which were spoken of a little time ago by you, that Jupiter demanded the restoration of his games in a dream, that the casters appeared with horses, and that a small ship was following the leading of a matron's girdle. A great many, even some of your own people, know all those things that the demons themselves confess concerning themselves, as often as they are driven by us from bodies, by the torments of our words, and by the fires of our prayers. Saturn himself... Serapis and Jupiter, and whatever demons you worship, overcome by pain, speak out what they are, and assuredly they do not lie to their own discredit, especially when any of you are standing by. Since they themselves are the witnesses that they are demons, believe them when they confess the truth of themselves. 
for when abjured by the only and true God, unwillingly the wretched beings shudder in their bodies and either at once leap forth or vanish by degrees as the faith of the sufferer assists or the grace of the healer inspires. Thus they fly from Christians when near at hand, whom at a distance they harassed by your means in their assemblies. And thus, introduced into the minds of the ignorant, they secretly sow their hatred of us by means of fear. That's the quintessential flipping the Roman world upside down. But also you see here, once again being repeated, just as we saw in Tertullian, that this is out there for the public. This is a widespread phenomenon, and the Romans know it. Mm-hmm. The Romans know that Christians have the authority to cast out demons. Yeah. It's on full display for them. Um, and, and that's repeated. And so that's where the, this confidence of the Christians is coming from, that they know this is effective, that what they're doing is working, and they're just throwing it out there to, uh, for all the Romans to see and kind of putting it in their face. Uh, 